If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we're bringing you an editor's pick, in which a member of our team chooses one of their own personal highlights from our back catalogue. Choosing today's episode was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. The interview he wanted to share with you is a 2018 conversation with the historian Jesse Childs about Catholics in Elizabethan England. Spencer had recently visited Rushton Triangular Lodge, which is a symbolic folly built by the Catholic nobleman Thomas Tresham, for a feature for BBC History magazine. And he spoke to Jesse to find out more about the wider history of Catholic persecution in the Elizabethan era. So let's talk about Rushton Triangular Lodge. It's it's an amazing building in the Northamptonshire countryside. It was built by a Catholic gentleman called Sir Thomas Tresham. Can you sort of tell me, give me a bit of background about Sir Thomas Tresham? What kind of person was he? Tresham was one of the most interesting Elizabethans you'll ever meet. He was a big man in Northamptonshire. He owned a lot of land there. He'd been sheriff in 1573. He'd actually been knighted by Elizabeth I in 1575. Um, And he was an intellectual. He loved reading. He was very well read. He was into mysticism. Um, He was also really litigious. He'd he'd, uh, trained in the law. He loved getting into all sorts of legal battles, especially with his female relatives. Um, But from 1580, when the Jesuit mission was launched in England, his faith became the most important thing for him, his his Catholic faith. And he was a very loud, proud, defiant Catholic. And he almost became a sort of uh, the unofficial spokesman for the Catholics in England um, in the latter half of Elizabeth's reign. Okay. And uh, did his Catholicism inform his building of Rushton Triangular Lodge? Yeah, absolutely. He'd been in prison for about 12 years, um, either in the fleet in London or in Ely um, or otherwise under house arrest in Hoxton, um, mainly for for recusancy, for for refusing to go to uh, Protestant church services every week. So he he saw himself very much as a victim. and, And in 1593, he finally got to go home. And this is when he builds the lodge. So it's kind of his way of, of saying, I'm still standing, you know. <laughs> and what makes a lodge so spectacular, so unique? Well, if you go there, you'll see it's just, there's nothing like it anywhere. It's, it's, it's in the shape of a triangle and it's covered in all sorts of 
symbolism. Um, everything is is uh, geared towards the number three. Um, you know, it's an equilateral triangle. There are there are three walls. They're each thirty three feet long. There are three floors. Uh, there are three windows on each floors. Um, there are also trefoils on each wall, which are sort of uh, club shaped emblems. They were in the Tresham family arms as well. So it's it's very much a sort of tribute to the Trinity, but it's it's more than that too. It's it's a testament to his faith and the endurance of his faith and strength in faith. And how long did it take to build, you know? Uh, yes, it was it's ironically it sort of took about three years actually. Um, oh, okay. from from his first plan in 1593. Um, he finished it around 1596. So he, he designed it actually, um, he was thinking about it when he was in prison. He, he told the story that his servant was reading to him when he was in prison and they heard three loud knocks on the table. Um, so this is part of his, his um, sense that the Trinity means something especially to him, the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. But also, you know, it's a pun on his name, Trez, Tresham. He would sign his name Trezam. I am Tresham. I am three. So you kind of get a sense also of, of what an ego is going on here as well. Um, you know, one of the inscriptions is um, in Latin, it's Tres Testimonium Dant, three bear witness. So it's sort of the Trinity bears witness, but he's also saying me, Tresham, Thomas Tresham, I am bearing witness to my faith. Uh, why did he build it where he did? Why in Northamptonshire? Northamptonshire was was where his estate was. So about a mile away is Rushton Hall, where he lived. It's a lovely Elizabethan house. Anyone can go there now. It's a hotel. Um, just go for a cream tea or something. It's beautiful. So you have to picture it. Now there's a road and it's, it's, um, it's I think it's National Trust, isn't it? It's, no, it's English Heritage. And you have to pay to get in. But back then in the, in the Elizabethan period, you would have been able to walk from his house. You would have been able to see it from his window. So it's all part of the same estate. So, so that's why it's there. It must have been a, a comfort to him. And and also in 1593, um, control orders were effectively introduced in Elizabethan England. So he couldn't travel beyond five miles of his home without a license. So he's got this place here that's, that started in 1593 that, that he can look at that, that must give him some comfort. What was the lodge used for on, on a day-to-day basis? I mean, did it have a, any kind of practical purpose? Well, yes, ostensibly um, and officially it was the Warrener's Lodge. So it was the house for the keeper of um, his rabbit warrens, which which was quite a big industry. It was quite profitable at the time. But um, if you go around and you look at it, you see it's not suitable for human habitation. And um, really, the, there's another reason, and it's much more to do with his faith. Um, it's often said that mass might have been sung there Um very risky if it was, but but quite possible. Um, also, just a place for personal devotion, for meditation, quite possibly for singing. Um, there's a brilliant scholar called Emily Murphy at York University who's done some wonderful research on the music at the time, the numerical symbolism of the notes. She's found work, um, musical work relating to Tresham and his circle. She thinks that maybe um, those songs were sung there. So it's it's a place of awe and reverence, um, slightly haunting. I mean, it's definitely also got a sort of damn brown quality to it with its, its mysticism. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know, actually. I mean, some of the codes, some of the symbols are quite obvious. You can figure them out. Um, but there are some that, that haven't been cracked yet. So it's, it's a very exciting place. Would the Protestant authorities have been aware of this building? I mean, was it a, was it a really avert um, display of defiance towards them? 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you couldn't miss it. Um, but they didn't make him take it down. But they absolutely weren't thrilled with it at all. And it's Northamptonshire is really interesting because you get places in England like Yorkshire and Lancashire that have pockets of Catholic recusancy. But in Northamptonshire, it's incredibly polarized. So you have prominent Catholics like Tresham, uh, like his brother-in-law, Lord Vaux, who lived in uh, Harrodon Hall in Wellingborough. But you also have um, Puritans like Sir Walter Mildmay, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was incredibly anti-Catholic. You have Lord Burley um, had a, his house there, his main house there, one of them, um, and Christopher Hatton and people like that. So it's it's a very polarized county, but definitely um, Tresham was resented, um, and at, especially at the sort of the, the commission level, the quarter session level, um, there were a lot of gentlemen who, who weren't happy. They thought you know he was getting away with a lot in a way. Um, and what's quite interesting is, is is in 1607, so just after Tresham had died, there was a big agrarian um, rising in the Midlands, and it started in Tresham's property because he was a very ruthless landowner as well. And these, this is actually the first levelers, the first time anyone uses the word levelers. Um, so there is resentment against Tresham, definitely. Just to go back to an earlier question, you mentioned that he was quite litigious. Could you just expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, sure. He's he's um, he was trained in the law. He loved disputes. I mean, I don't think he was a particularly nice person. Uh, if you read his letters, he's pretty foul about a lot of people, and he's a bit of a misogynist at times. Um, and the people he really um, had fights with were um, the Vaux women. His brother-in-law was Lord Vaux, and um, they were constantly trying to to get money from the estate. He basically managed the estate of Lord Vaux, who was who was. Um, not quite up to it himself. So, so Tresham was very controlling, and, and there are all sorts of disputes going on. And it's it's fascinating. You read about it in masses of detail in um, the Tresham Papers, which are now in the British Library. There are eleven volumes, but they weren't always there. They were originally bricked into the walls of Rushton Hall just by the lodge, um, and only sort of two hundred or so years later were they pulled down by builders. And it's in those papers that you read all the details of these law disputes. Also. So all the details of his architectural plans, um, all his letters and papers. So it's it's absolutely thrilling. You get such insight from them. And didn't he fall out with quite a lot of um, the was it the farmers in the area? Like disputes over the enclosure of land. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's that's the Midlands rising in 1607. So the first levelers, and it started on on his land. And he was a very ruthless landowner, and partly he had to be because he had all these fines to pay. Um, but he wasn't popular, and he was he was a bit of a heavy as well. You know, there was there's one case when a 70 year old man owed him money. Tresham sends his son Francis and a whole load of goons along with um, crowbars and they sort of rough him up and they, they actually um, push down his pregnant daughter down the stairs. She, she had a month to go. So um, he was he was not popular in the county. Now you mentioned earlier that Tresham spent quite a lot of time in, in prison. I mean, how much was he persecuted for his beliefs throughout his life? Oh, massively. Um, I mean, he... he referred to his life as moth-eaten. Um, he said it was like a, a quotidian kind of imprisonment. Um, he spent over a decade in prison or under house arrest. He very much felt that that they'd been treated as, as second-class citizens. And it was it was essentially his his mission, his vocation to make this known to the world. Um, and, you know, if, if you want the details about the persecution, they were fined for not going to Protestant church services, they uh, weren't allowed the mass. They weren't allowed priests. They weren't even really allowed things like rosaries and crucifixes if they came from Rome. Um, so 
it is. It's very suffocating. I mean, the whole idea is is to take the sacraments away from these these Catholics so that they they can't worship as they wish. What kind of Catholic was Tresham? It's a really good question. He was a recusant, um, which meant that he refused to go to the Protestant church services every week and every holy day. Um, that put him in in a very small category, um, and it was a defiant act. But was he an active plotter? Um, it's hard to say. I would actually argue that he probably was. He's very slippery. I mean, he is he is basically the spokesman for the Catholics. He's sending petitions to the Queen um, a lot of the time. He's very emotive. He says things like, um, suffer us not to be the only outcasts and refuse of the world. Let it not be treason for a dying man to receive the last rites. Um, and so you kind of think, and also things like the Lodge, you think, well, he's wearing his faith on his sleeve. He's straight up. But actually, if you look in those papers, um, the Tresham papers, you see that it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's one time at the end of the reign when his mask slips um, and, and he said that Elizabeth was bastardized and that uh, Catholics had a settled hatred for Anne Boleyn um, and that Mary, Queen of Scots, had always had the, the better claim. There's also um, the Spanish ambassador was saying in 1582 that, that Tresham was plotting actively against the Queen. So it's a case of who do you believe? Um, and I, I tend to think that Tresham was was very slippery. I mean, was it possible to be a practising Catholic in England at the time, but yet be loyal to the Queen? I mean, was that a, a circle that, be squ- that could be squared? It depends how hardline you are, in a way. And, and this is why it was such an impossible situation for the Catholics, because in 1570, Pope Pius V out uh, Lord Elizabeth. He excommunicated her. He said that she was uh, a heretic and illegitimate, and Catholics had a duty to disobey her. Um, and then you get in 1580, another Pope, Gregory XIII, slightly qualifying that, saying, well, you're allowed to be loyal um, under present circumstances, whatever that means. you know." Um, so some people interpreted that as, no, we must be recusants. Other people thought, well, no, I'll, I'll go to uh, church services the whole time. Um, I'll be a church papist, as, as it was known as, and I'll just receive the last rites on my deathbed. Um, so there's a massively wide spectrum, and it very much depends where you sit on that spectrum um, as to whether or not you think it's at all tenable. Do we know how many um, practicing Catholics there were in England at this time? Ha, that is the million dollar question in a way, because, and you know, impossible to answer because people don't advertise their faith when they're going to get fined for it. Um, but um, to give you a sort of an idea, John Bossy, the eminent historian, suggested that there were 40,000 in 1603 at the end of the reign, 40,000 Catholics. And of that number, um, only a small fraction, about 8,500 were the recusants, the really hardline ones. But it's it's very hard to say. I think that's possibly a conservative estimate. Um, but what you do have in Elizabeth's reign is time. And that's the most important thing. At the end of the reign, you have people growing up who don't know what a vestment is, don't know um, what the mass is like, you know, who, who don't know what Catholic England was like. And that's probably the greatest weapon that the Elizabethan state had, just, just the process of time and the shift of generation. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Did Elizabeth become progressively less tolerant towards Catholicism as her reign progressed? Yes, yes, that's absolutely fair. Um, although I'd never use the word tolerant. It's not a tolerant age. Um, and and right from the beginning of her reign, um, it was uh, a part of the Elizabethan settlement that uh, people would be fined if they did not go to Protestant church services. So it was a small fine. It was, it was 12, 12 pence a month. But the principle's there from the beginning that, you know, you have to be a Protestant, Um, you have to toe the line. Having said that, um, I think Elizabeth was moderate by inclination. She didn't want to force consciences. She wasn't like her sister Mary in that sense. Um, But what she expected was obedience. And she was her father's son. Uh, daughter, even she, <laughs> she was, she, she, she was, she was the daughter of, of Henry VIII. She was tough as nails, you know, and and she expected obedience. So what you find is that when they 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 stop obeying, they don't go to church. Um, the screw is tightened. She also is in a um, practically impossible position with the excommunication, and and then she's under siege from Catholic Europe. You know, Spain, the papacy. I think it did. I think she was stuck between a, a rock and a hard place in many ways. So what you see throughout the reign, you look at the legislation and it gets tougher and tougher. So the question is, you know, was she lenient? Was she moderate? Would she like to have been? Quite possibly. Um, but she was also a divine right ruler. And so there is that responsibility always and from the beginning to make sure that her subjects go to heaven. And I think maybe she took that a bit more seriously than we give her credit for now. I mean, I think it's anachronistic to say that she was she was tolerant in the way that she's sort of celebrated as such today. I think that's that's wrong. So how many Catholics were executed during her reign? Probably about 200, um, about 160 priests for being priests, because from 1585, you couldn't be a seminary priest in England. Um, it was a capital offence. Uh, about 60 men and women, lay men and women, uh, who just put them up in their houses, who sheltered them. That also was a capital felony. So people were hung for that. Then you get um, at, at the horrific end of the scale, someone like Margaret Clitheroe of York, who um, was pressed to death. She was. She was. Uh, she had to lie down, and a door was 
placed on top of her. And then seven or 800 weight was put on top of that until her ribs crushed. And that was not even for harboring a priest. That was for refusing to plead to the charge of priests harboring. But there's also a lot of torture. I mean, Elizabeth's reign has more recorded torture than, than any other in English history. Uh, it's not something we necessarily associate with her. But her name is on the warrants. You know, you see her signature, that beautiful signature on the torture warrants. So she can't, there's not deniability there, not at all. Can you just tell us about some of the other um, serious plots against against the Queen during her reign? You have um, um, the year after the excommunication. So in, in 1571, you have the Rodolfi plot, which was named after a Florentine banker, Roberto Rodolfi, who was uh, kind of enigmatic, another sort of slippery kind of character. You're never quite sure whose side he's on. He's playing people off. But essentially, um, it was to replace Elizabeth with Mary, Queen of Scots. And there was, uh, there was to be a Spanish invasion of England. Um, and that was foiled quite early on um, by spies. Uh, letters were intercepted. The Duke of Norfolk was involved in that. His letter were intercepted. Uh, another quite important one was the Throckmorton plot of, of 1583. That was uh, mainly engineered by the Guises, the powerful Guise Catholic family um, related to Mary, Queen of Scots in, in France. And, and again, it was to replace Elizabeth with Mary. So there's a pattern here. And then you get um, probably the most famous plot is 1586, the Babington plot, which uh, is the first one to explicitly state that they would assassinate Elizabeth. Famously, it, it's the one that, that did it for Mary, Queen of Scots in the end. She was executed after that. And it was foiled um, because Francis Walsingham had a man on the inside from very early on. And it's argued whether or not it was actually, uh, he was an agent provocateur and it, it was fermented. Uh, but certainly there were Catholics, Anthony Babington and his crew, who um, wanted to assassinate the Queen. So it may have been a sting operation, but it was uh, it was sincere as well. So if Elizabeth was was paranoid, she had every right to be then. I think so. Yes. Um, and she was actually, in some ways, she was a curb on her more zealous ministers. There were certain um, bills that they wanted to pass that she said, no, 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 that's that's going too far. Um, I think you get sort of people like Walsingham who almost sort of create an institutional paranoia. And you can understand why, because it is it is. Um, it is sort of do or die. And he had been, I think, to understand his mindset, you have to remember that he had been in Paris uh, in 1572 at the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, which was the slaughter of thousands of French Protestants. Um, and the Seine was said to run red with blood. Women and children were, were killed and slaughtered. And he was there with his pregnant wife and with his child in the English embassy there. And I think uh, for him, it's personal and it's visceral. And he really thinks that it's it's existential, the Catholic threat. I mean, how formidable a foe was he to England's Catholics? He was he was incredibly formidable. He didn't for him the ends justified the means. So he didn't mind torture, he didn't mind uh agent provocateur, he didn't mind all, all sorts of sort of slightly shady things. And and you know, at her trial, at Mary Queen of Scots' trial, she accused him of of treating him badly. Um and he said to her his famous lines, and I hope I remember it now, he said, um, I have not done anything as a private man unworthy of an honest man nor as a public man unworthy of my calling. And then he said, I protest before God that as a man careful of my mistress's safety, I have been curious. And that's, that's his way of saying it. He's sort of saying, you know, 
it, it, it was required. It was required. Um, and I think, you know, you do have to, you do have to bear in mind that this is the age of holy war. This is the age of assassination where England is at war with Spain from 1585. And, assassinations are going on on the continent. I mean, you have, or, or even closer to home, you have Regent Moray in 1570 in Scotland shot dead. You have William of Orange uh, in 1584. There's Henry III of France in 1589. On it goes. These, these, these are leaders who are being assassinated. And if Elizabeth had been assassinated, um, then there goes the Protestant state. I could just give us a couple of examples of individual acts of defiance by Catholics in this, in this period. Oh, well, there, there are some quite fun ones if, if, if we're talking about the church papists again, so sort of more on the obedient side of the spectrum. Um, they would go to church. Uh, you might get them keeping their hat on during the sermon, or you might find them reading a book, a Catholic book. Um, there was a woman who, who was accused of um, spitting out the communion wafer after the service and stamping on it. Um, and there was another guy called, called Richard Sherburn of York who um, put cotton wool in his ears every time he went to church. So these are their sort of little mini protests. Um, and then you also get more recusant-minded Catholics um, doing things like collecting relics. You know, when, when the priests were executed, they would they would go and, and collect their relics. And the, there was a very um, heavy underground traffic of, of, of relics, um, things like that. Um, you would have priest holes in houses so that they could hide priests. They would sew vestments for them, all that kind of thing. If you were, if you were again, if you're more obedient, you would try and internalize your faith. So you might, uh, they were encouraged to sort of pinpoint areas in their gardens um, and dedicate each area to a, to a to a saint. And so it would be like going on a little pilgrimages when they went on walks. Uh, for some, that was enough. For others, they needed the sacraments, and it wasn't enough. You mentioned priest holes. I mean, how elaborately were they concealed? Some of them are amazing, and some of them you can still see. The the famous priest hole maker, though of course not the only one, um, was a guy called Nicholas Owen. Um, his nickname was Little John. He was very small. In Spanish, Juan el Chico, he was called. Um, and he he designed these amazing priest holes. Um, and they were quite elaborate. You, sometimes a priest hole would just be a, a hole hidden, you know, in an attic. But sometimes with him at Coton uh, Court in Warwickshire, for example, you can see a double priest hole. So that the, the, the perseverance they were known, the priest hunters, would come in and storm one of these holes and go, oh, we found it, it's empty. Uh, but they didn't realize that there would be another one underneath it. Um, there was a priest hole at Hindlip in Worcestershire, which... Um, Henry Garnet, the Jesuit priest, implicated unfairly uh, in the gunpowder plot. He hid there for nine days while the house was being completely torn apart. Um, and the reason he survived was because there was a reed, a tube, through the stone masonry from, from his priest hole to the lady's chamber alongside it. So she could feed broths and, and cordials and cordials and things like that. So that's kind of amazing. Um, a great place to visit uh, now is Harvington Hall in Worcestershire because that's got loads of uh, loads of hides. Uh, probably, I, I think, the best surviving set, actually. Um, quite possibly a lot of them built by Nicholas Owen. Uh, my favorite there is, is, is something known as the, the swinging beam hide. And it was so well hidden that it was only discovered by a little boy um, playing in what was then a derelict wing in 1894. Just returning to Sir Thomas Tresham, what, what happened to him um, after he built Russian Triangular Lodge. Did, did he return to prison after or did he live out his life a free man? 
He, well, he was a free man, but he wouldn't have seen it that way. Uh, it is what he called his quotidian kind of imprisonment. Um, in 1593, you get the control orders. So the statute of confinement, it was known as. And um, this meant that recusants like Tresham couldn't travel beyond five miles of their home without a license. Um, so he might have been able to look out of his window and, and see the lodge, and that would be very comforting. But he couldn't travel to London very easily to sort out all his financial and legal affairs. So um, it was a very tricky time for him. And you see him sort of in his papers. He gets very mystical, very much into numerical symbolism. Um, he's reading so much. Um, and he actually he survived Elizabeth I. He survived her by two years. Uh, and he had so much hope when James came to the throne. He proclaimed James the first king. He was the first to do it in his county. He was incredibly excited. Um, but actually nothing really changed. There'd been lots of sweet promises, but but nothing really changed. Um, the fines were still in place. The repression was still there. Um, so he died actually on, he died on the 11th of September, 1605. And just the following month, his wife's nephew, Robert Catesby, tried to recruit his son, Francis, into the gunpowder plot. So it's when Tresham dies, it's sort of a, a changing of the guard. It's a marking of the old order. You, know, you get these angry young men, the next generation saying, enough. So do you think what happened to Francis was a, um, a direct consequence of what happened to his father? I think very much so. I think it must have been incredibly frustrating for people like Francis and his cousin, Catesby, um, to see their fathers broken over decades by this legislation, by the penal laws, um, and really being persecuted and, and yet trying to sort of stay patient and, and have fortitude. And, and you get this next generation, they're, they're fed up, um, constantly being told they're anti-national. They're frustrated. I mean, a lot of things are, are, are curbed for them. They can't graduate from university. Um, they can't hold any kind of public office. They can't take up arms for the queen. So they, they're, they're your classics of nihilistic, angry young men. They want to make a difference. They, they, want, to, they want change. And, and Francis Tresham is very interesting because even though he was recruited into the gunpowder plot by his cousin Catesby, uh, he was a very, very reluctant uh, terrorist, if we put it that way. Um, he said, and whether we believe him or not is another matter, but he said he didn't want any part of it. He tried to give Catesby money to go abroad. Um, so, you know, it, it's not quite as easy as saying Thomas Tresham was moderate and patient and passive and his son was you know radical and and a terrorist. I don't think, I think it's, it, I think they're both more in the gray spectrum there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think uh, definitely Francis Tresham, see, he was involved in the Essex uprising as well. You kind of get the impression he just wanted to, to make something happen. OK, Jesse, well, really one final question. Do, do you think that by the end of Elizabeth's reign, most Catholics in his country had accepted that England wouldn't return to Catholicism, that, that the Protestants had won? Or do you think they still har harboured that uh, ultimate goal? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, Robert Catesby and co weren't happy. They wanted a Catholic king or queen. Um, they were never going to accept someone like James. But I think you're right. I think uh, the vast, vast majority of Catholics um, definitely wanted some kind of freedom of worship. And I think by the end of the reign, 
they had hope for that. They had hope for that with James and they would have been happy with that. If they could, if they could worship freely or at least without persecution, you know, without being forced to go to another service, I think they would have been happy with that. Um, so I think the whole tragedy is that, is that the actions of a few ruin it for everybody. That was Jesse Childs. We'll have more editor's picks coming up for you over the Christmas period, so keep refreshing your feed for those. And if you've got some time to kill between the board games and the mince pies, then head over to historyextra.com for a whole treasure trove of podcasts, articles and quizzes on all things historical. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. (laughs) 